Welcome to The Reserve, a news and thoughts podcast from the Centralverse. I'm your host, Caleb Nygaard. Today is episode number five. We are super excited about our guest today. Uh, Greg Galzinis is an associate director of the Center for American Progress, where he specializes in financial regulation and consumer financial protection. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Caleb. Excited to be here. And as always, welcome back, Stephen Kelly. Thanks, Caleb. Now, as I've uh, mentioned before, uh, the reserve name for the podcast is in reference to an old uh, Alan Blinder joke that when he told people he worked at the Federal Reserve, they thought he meant some national forest out west. Well, if the Fed was indeed a forest out west, it would almost certainly be in big trouble today due to climate change. I spent time this summer with family in the Rockies, and although still beautiful, the dense smoke from the out-of-control wildfires uh, was, a, was a huge issue and was on everybody's mind. Um, so today we're going to dive into the issue of climate uh, as well as other issues uh, uh, with the central bank. Um, Greg is certainly at the forefront of, the, of this conversation, and, and we're excited to have him on. Um, climate is on the mind of Fed watchers the world over for, for two kind of big reasons uh, uh, these past weeks, months, and, and, and coming weeks and months. First, the, the Fed chair, Jay Powell's past, present, and potential future position on what the Fed can or should do with climate change is one of the key determinants in whether Biden will appoint him or not. And second, and I'm going to posit that this is even more important and hope, and I think we're going to spend a, a, a more uh, significant portion of the podcast on this aspect. And that is, you know, the Fed has made some small moves already in climate, uh, climate change, climate action, climate uh, personnel uh, in the last year or two. Uh, and the next years will be really pivotal for where the Fed um, and the other group of regulators to the degree that we uh, get into that aspect of it as well. Um, it's going to be a really important couple of years, regardless of who uh, is the Fed chair uh, for the next four years. So, Greg, let's start here. Um, let, let's start with, with this race for the chair. And, and I want to specifically start by talking about kind of the, the how climate has been talked about in regards to the race. You know, in, in your view, what are commentators uh, uh, both from markets and from and from politics and from uh, from the media, what are they getting right and what are they getting wrong uh, when they talk about climate change and the Fed? Absolutely. So, you know, I'd start with um, perhaps what what they're getting uh, what they're getting wrong, and I think the the first element there is there seems to be a a surprise both climate groups and then folks like me who work on financial regulation, but in making um, climate in this discussion around the Fed chair, I'm surprised that, that, that that's an issue um, and, a, and a central issue here. Um, it shouldn't be a surprise. Over the past um, several years, uh, many of us have been making these arguments even before uh, many of us in the, in the United States, both in the public interest community and, uh, and in Congress, have been making these um, arguments, uh, foreign central banks and supervisors um, dating all the way back to 2014 and 2015 have been talking about the intersection of climate change um, with financial uh, regulation beyond just disclosure, which is uh, a conversation that dates even farther back um, than the, the mid-2010s. Um, and, and so 
you know, just because folks haven't been paying attention to the emergence of this intersection between climate change and financial regulation doesn't mean it is totally new um, or totally underdeveloped um, or an area um, that isn't deserving of, uh, of, of a central piece of this discussion uh, around the Fed chair. Another element that I think, you know, some folks in, in the media, it's related to, to their sh sort of surprise with this being an issue, is this notion that it is an inappropriate interconnection, um, that the Fed really doesn't have uh, a responsibility um, to, to, to touch climate change and, and that what folks on the outside are doing is essentially trying to um, hoodwink folks and say that, um, you know, and try to turn the Fed into the EPA to achieve climate related ends. Um, and, and that's just not the case. The interconnection between um, the Fed and, and, and climate change is, um, it, of course, statutory responsibilities uh, of the Fed. And in, in the financial regulatory context, the Fed has a responsibility to promote the safety and soundness of regulated entities and also to promote um, financial of climate change, the increase in frequency and severity of catastrophic weather events, as well as the transition to uh, a low carbon economy referred to as, as transition risks, both impact, uh, you know, financial, real and financial assets and could increase losses for financial institutions, um, you know, in the short, medium and certainly long term. And so if the Fed ignores the ways in which climate change threaten uh, the probability of to the loss given default on, on certain assets, it's actually refusing to do its job. Um, and so we think that, that the real political decision here, the real inappropriate approach here is, is to ignore these risks and actually ignore um, the Fed's underlying statutory um, mandate. Now, I, I think many uh, commentators and uh, media ha have, have accurately characterized um, this discussion. This, this isn't, again, about um, foisting social ends or climate-related ends on a financial regulatory agency. This is getting down to the core responsibility, um, you know, in statutory itself. And, and in some, yeah, some of the coverage, I think, has, has really appropriately um, reflected um, that case. But in any event, I think, to me, those are the two elements um, that stand out. One, this, this surprise um, and confusion as to why climate change um, is uh, is brought up in this discussion and, and two, a uh, sort of gut reaction that this is somehow um, inappropriate or not fit for purpose for this discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Those are those are excellent. Those are important points. And, you know, one aspect of all of this that I have been a little bit surprised uh, about on the on the political side, and I and maybe I shouldn't be surprised that the chair position is obviously a big important, uh, important job. It's an important, uh, uh, it's the important position within the Fed, um, but it's not the only one. And especially in regards to climate, um, I've read or listened to almost, I think, all of the commentary on, on the discussions that are going around about the, the political gains games that are that are being played and the kind of the shuffling of, of, of who the potential uh, nominees are. Um, and I've been surprised, uh, even from many people with uh, uh, climate forward uh, agendas or, 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 or priorities where climate is high on that, that there haven't been names 
offered maybe not probably not for chair uh you know they think everybody expects it to be either powell or brainerd and that's fair um but in these other or in the medium and long term i don't even see like you know long lists where there are people with uh you know direct climate economy background i mean one that comes to mind uh, william nordhouse he's 80 years old and is a sterling professor at yale so he's not gonna he's not gonna take mm. a position uh at the fed but you know he he won the Nobel in economics for his work in, in, in climate. Um, and so, you know, what are some names that maybe people should be thinking about in for the medium or, or, or for the long term of, uh, of there's not an official uh, vice chair of, of climate, although there is a, a climate committee, uh, a relatively new climate committee. But, you know, are, are there any names that you'd like to talk about about? either people that are in the mix right now that uh, have favorable views on, on climate in, in your opinion, and then also any that aren't being talked about as well. Yeah. So I'll mention uh, one, uh, one name that, that has been um, I think floated in, in some of the press reporting around um, the vice chair for supervision uh, slot, which is uh, Sarah Bloom Raskin, uh, former fed governor, uh, former deputy uh, treasury secretary during the Obama administration, um, she has been one of the, the, if not the leading voices when it comes to tackling uh, climate related uh, financial risks um, over the past uh, over the past two, two to three years, really since this issue um, emerged uh, in the United States and this con- this policy conversation was imported from um, our, our European uh, counterparts. And so she on multiple occasions has um you know, delivered uh, speeches, served on uh, conference, now, you know, op-eds um, that really lent credibility um, to this issue area when it was first um, when it was first emerging in, in the United States, because, again, there weren't many people um, talking about it here. And so her um, recognizing the legitimacy of this issue and then adding um, to to the policy development and thinking uh, around the scale, scope, urgency, and specific policy tools needed to mitigate um, these risks really gave um, this effort in the United States uh, a boost. And, and without her leadership, uh, you know, I'm not sure that we'd be in a position um, uh, today where this issue it does have um, quite a bit of uh, of momentum as the Biden administration sort of turned the turned the page on on the Trump administration. And similarly to to Sarah Bloom Raskin. Um, same is true for for Lyle Brainerd in in 2019, um, sort of sticking her neck out and in, in talking about this issue, um, you know, and pushing the Fed behind the scenes to to finally join the network for greening the financial system in December of of 2020 after the presidential election. So, you know, I don't necessarily have a long list uh, of, of of folks to to, to speculate on, but. Um, but but Sarah Bloom Raskin is someone who, who really does come to mind as not only a leader on core financial regulatory issues, which she has um, been for a very long time, um, but also on this new uh, emerging climate issue. And she really did help um, pick up the issue in, in, in here in the United States. And, and I think a lot of us in the progressive community are extremely grateful for um, for her leadership and, and foresight on this issue. So. Um, 
that that's the the, the name I would mention in, yeah. in, in this context. And then also certainly um, plug the great work that Governor Brainerd has done um, on this issue, because, as you mentioned, Caleb, the Fed really hasn't um, done a whole lot aside from a few um, symbolic steps. But I personally question whether the Fed would have even done those symbolic steps without someone like Governor Brainerd behind the scenes um, pushing hard and also taking the case publicly at, at several points in the past. So, so Greg, I want to talk about Powell and, and this climate issue a bit. Um, you know, I think kind of the critiques of Powell's climate record are basically fall into two camps. One is that he he's late, that the Fed is late to this issue because of him. And the second is that it's been weak. And, and I'm going to defer on the weak uh, issue. And I think we should probably talk about 13.3 in a little bit, too. Um, but that this issue that he's been late and, and you know, how, how Brainerd has pushed for it. And, and this issue has kind of been around for a while. Um, you know, he, he gets flack for the, the NGFS, the network ingredient in the financial stability uh, or financial system. But I, I'm kind of skeptical that that was much of a hindrance. I mean, he couldn't join until Biden was elected and we rejoined the Paris Accord. Uh, so I, I'm a little skeptical that that was some sort of political play, which it sometimes gets characterized as. Uh, and the other piece is, you know, we kind of, he kind of quickly, the Fed has quickly rolled out these two new climate committees, the supervision committee, uh, which is, you know, designed to think about these risks in the bank that you kind of mentioned at the start of the show, you know, that the concern over losses or, or climate related issues inside a bank. Uh, as well as the Financial Stability Committee. I know a lot of folks want more done on the financial stability front, but they at least rolled out these committees pretty quickly. Uh, before joining the NGFS, they were an observer, uh, just you know, as a result of the fact that they couldn't officially join. You know, I, I'm a little skeptical of the notion that they were really just an observer. I'm sure they had plenty of influence in that room. Um, so I, I guess I don't necessarily buy the take that the Fed was so behind the rest of the world on this. It seemed like this work was happening behind the scenes and maybe, maybe Brainerd was a big, big uh, advocate of that. Or we know she was an advocate of that, uh, but it doesn't seem to me like Powell necessarily uh, quelled much of this. What, it, what would your response be to that? Yeah. So uh, great points, a lot to, a uh, lot to unpack there. So um, first of all, in the, you know, the argument that the Fed could not have joined the NGFS until um, the U.S. once again joined the Paris Agreement. Um, I I don't believe that that's actually um, the case. If the Fed um, had pushed to join the NGFS, despite the United States not joining um, the Paris Agreement, because obviously the Fed has no control over whether the United States uh, would join um, the Paris Agreement or, or not, um, then the uh, then the NGFS would have allowed the United States to join and would have made an exception at one of the one of the annual um, meetings. Uh, it's my understanding the United States or the Fed, excuse me, did not push um, hard to make that um, make that a, a reality. So the second point I, I'd make is that even if it, it was the case that the Fed. Um, you know, could not have joined the NGFS because uh, because the United States was no longer part of the Paris Agreement. Um, the climate committees, uh, Stephen, that you mentioned, both on the microprudential side and then the Financial Stability Climate Committee, those on the Fed joining the network for greening the financial system. So if the Fed um, was was sitting back and saying, you know, really wish we could 
focus more on climate change. We'd love to join the network for greening the financial system, but we can't since the Trump administration is um, no longer part of the Paris Agreement. They still could have created these committees in 2018 or 2019 or even, you know, pre-December um, of, of 2020, um, because, again, these committees have not actually produced any variables. They are very much in the, quote, early stages where they are researching the issue, engaging in international conversations um, on the issue and considering policy options. We actually haven't seen any um, deliverables come out of, uh, of those um, committees uh, to date. Um, and another point I, I'd like to make is that, you know, you mentioned that the Fed was basically an observer at, at the NGFS, um, mm-hmm. you know, over the past several years. Um, well, it, if, if so, and, and it is my understanding that they did have staff at, at, um, that would you know, attend some NGFS meetings, they were not an official observer. Observer mm-hmm. is an actual status um, that um, perhaps they could have um, been an official observer. The, the Paris Agreement issue would have um, precluded them from from if they push. They're not going to say, you know, Europe's not going to say no to, to the Federal Reserve. In <laughs> fact, quite the opposite. Europe um, has been begging for the United States to, to join these climate-related finance um, conversations, but um, met with with much silence. Um, so if the Fed was doing a, at least a little bit um, in 18, 19, and, and 20 before joining the NGFS and before um, and before, uh, you know, establishing these these climate committees, one would ask, why were they not public about any of that? And I think we, we'd all suspect the answer there is fear of blowback from Republicans um, on Capitol Hill, something that yeah. we've seen over the past um, several months. So so I you know, we hear a lot that the Federal Reserve is is apolitical, which is a, a premise that um, I reject. Um, and I think this is, a, you know, an, an example here where to me, the true political action um, is uh, avoiding work on climate change for fear of reprisal uh, among Republicans uh, on the Hill. I think that's the real political act. The true, um, let's, let's call it apolitical, statutory mandate fulfilling act here, in my opinion, is, is aggressively mitigating climate-related risks mm-hmm. to individual institutions and the financial system um, as a whole. You know, the, 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 the political option is, is to do nothing for fear of political blowback. Okay, so let, let me follow up with, let, let's, uh, let's just say, let's let bygones be bygones. The Fed is slow, you know, it was late to this, you know, what else is new in Fedland, right? They're slow on real-time payments, they're slow on this and that. So they were slow on this, but now, now they've got these committees. What, what do you see as the problem with, with the status quo? I mean, yeah, obviously we've gotten no deliverables from these committees, um, but we also don't know necessarily what we're going to get. I mean, Powell's view is well known. Um, I think the Fed's view in general is decently well known. You know, they're more empathetic to the supervision view than the financial stability view. But, but what do you see as the problem with uh, the status quo, given that we've now got these, these committees? Yeah, I think the, the, the status quo here is a lack of willingness to pursue any policy that comes from those those committees. Um, so, you know, we haven't seen any uh, evidence of uh, a draft, you know, or proposed supervisory um, expectations document, whether it's a supervisory letter or uh, a proposed guidance, you know, that type of supervisory expectation setting could could take many forms, but we've seen no evidence of that. And that is something that does not take many months 
to put together. If you've looked mm -hmm. at some of the supervisory guidance documents by the ECB um, or by um, the Bank of England or even at the state level by the New York Department of Financial Services on the insurance side, um, the first step when it comes to these climate-related financial um, supervisory guidance documents is very high level. Um, and it's expected to be an iterative process. This is a document that um, would not take a ton of time to put together and, and put out as a first step to make sure um, bank supervisors are, are starting this supervisory conversation with um, the regulated entities. So the fact that um, the Fed joined the NGFS in December 2020, you know, in my opinion, several years too late. Um, and the fact that we're almost, you know, what are we, nine months, 10 months from that point that we haven't, um, we haven't even seen a signaling from Powell in any of um, his press conferences or testimony on the Hill that a supervisory document um, is uh, imminent or forthcoming, you know, that really concerns me that if we're still, you know, several months, year type of first step, how far are we away from establishing testing framework, how far are we are away from opening up the conversation around integrating climate risk into bank capital requirements? How far away are we from a conversation around even more um, stringent tools uh, than that? Things like um, activities, restrictions, or portfolio limits, you know, reservations, reservations of the safety and soundness authority for certain high-risk um, activities. So um, I guess that's my problem with, this, with mm -hmm. the status quo. It's one thing that there have been no deliverables. It's another that we don't even see um, you know, the signaling that some are on the way, you know, it seems like this is an issue that Chair Powell um, really wants to slow walk. He wants to have it both ways. He wants to um, acknowledge that this issue does intersect with the feds. He wants to conduct some research and give some speeches on the issue, but he doesn't want to do anything to actually mitigate the risk and certainly not quickly. Those are good. That's a good, uh, that's an excellent back and forth uh, right there. And, and a lot of this is, is around timing and around uh, these issues. And I think it's, it's something that, uh, that isn't unique to climate and the Fed, but is, 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 is an issue with any problem, any long-term problem, gauging that how, how time sensitive and, and when do we act uh, when is, is really important. On the political uh, kind of advocacy front, I'm wondering, you know, the Fed, although I, I, I actually am, am, am quite sympathetic to the and I think the, 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 the frequent tropes about uh, political independence um, are, are uh, naive and, and, and most are, uh, are not grounded as well in history as, as some as, the, as the, those that make those claims often say. Um, but I think it's I think we can all agree that if if there was more action from the Hill and from the white house that there would, uh, there we would give the fed, the fed would, would gladly follow along if, if they were, uh, in kind of behind. So do you think there's uh, enough attention and is it just, uh, as in regards to making climate a part of the the mandate, and maybe not even in an equal standing as as price stability and 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 maximum employment, but even as a secondary, uh, I, I'm not I don't know exactly how it works with the ECB, but I know they have some kind of tiered mandates and things like that. Um, 
is it even possible? Is it is even is it even worth that that conversation with those on the Hill? Um, or do we need to focus all of our attention on the Fed? Because it's just really not not politically possible to get something like that through Congress, even though that would the trickle down to the Fed would probably be pretty stark. Yeah. So it's my view that at least from a climate related finance, micro prudential and macro prudential level, um, the Fed and, and our financial regulators have all the authority that, that they need on this issue because the writs of authority um, in Dodd-Frank or in the Federal Deposit Insurance Act, Bank Holding Company Act, all the underlying um, banking statutes um, provide sufficient discretion to meet those safety and soundness and financial stability goals. And so as long as um, you know our financial regulators acknowledge that climate change um, does threaten um, those goals and does pose uh, risk to um, financial uh, markets and institutions, um, then that unlocks the suite of, um, you know, of tools that, that, that we've uh, briefly mentioned here that, that could be used to mitigate um, those risks. So, you know, the question of whether even moving something on the Hill uh, on, on this issue is possible, probably not um, in, in the near term. Um, but to the extent that our goal here is safety and soundness and financial stability, I think um, that that's not that legislation is not necessary. I think it it can be helpful to send a signal to the Fed and, and have yeah. more legislation from um, Senator Warren and Kasten on, on climate disclosure at, at the SEC. We've had um, the shots Kasten bill on, on climate related um, stress testing that that's very helpful and a few, I think, forthcoming bills touching on, on capital and, and maybe outright um activities-based restrictions for the riskiest um, carbon financing um, activities, which that'll, that'll all be helpful to um, put pressure on our financial regulators to set a marker and to provide attention to it. But I think for many of the things that we're talking, um, no, new, no new legislation is re- required. And it's just a um, with, with the political will and, and courage necessary to use the levers that are already um, that are already at their disposal. And Caleb, to your point, um, you know, as you segued in, into this topic on timing and urgency, um, you know, as you, you and Stephen both know, the, the model for financial regulation, unfortunately, throughout history has been uh, let's react uh, ex post to brutal crises and then try to fill in the blanks. Um, yeah. It's a really proactive approach. Um, with climate related risks, that cannot be our model um, because once climate change is threatening the stability of the, the financial system at worst or just chronically eroding resilience and causing banks to pull back right as um, our economy needs uh, banks to su- support them because the transition is going to need the financial system to, you know, to, to finance those expenditures. Um, if those things are causing problems for our financial system, it's too late for financial regulation. Like it's, it's going to be far too late. Um, We need to handle, we need to improve the resiliency of the system um, now and make sure that our financial system is, is on a glide path to be consistent with uh, a one uh, degree um, world. And on this uh, path to, to net zero in the next, you know, five, six, seven years, this is the critical period now. Um, there will be no um, post, you know, climate driven financial crash of 2035 Dodd-Frank <laughs> Act equivalent. Um, yeah. That won't happen. It's too late. We've, we've, we missed the ball on this and are going to have to live with 
um, the consequences um, if if that's our sort of ex post strategy this time. So that's why I think you you can sense in um, in my voice, <laughs> not just literally on, on this call, but in, in our, our work and writing and, and many both on the Hill and, and in public interest organizations, there's a sense of urgency here because climate is in, in many ways unlike other, um, you know, risks that um, we've dealt with um, traditionally in, in terms of the existence of, of tipping points and the complexity of the underlying environmental systems um, at play here that we really do think a precautionary approach just how devastating the worst case the worst case outcome here um, could be that warrants um, aggressive proactive steps here even with imperfect information because we're never we could study this issue for 10 years and have awesome fed reports that do their best to try to model and quantify these risks and it's still going to be a significant level of of of, of uncertainty um, in in those models and, and projections and we're financial regulators may not be comfortable um, with that, but they're going to have to get comfortable with acting with imperfect information um, in order to protect against the you know severe tail risk that exists within this uh, context. Greg, how do you see the Fed? Uh, you know, I, I guess the way I think I think this would be a fair way to characterize the the, the strictest view of of the climate approach to to Finreg, which which I would consider you a, a subscriber to, which is that. You know, maybe there are short run costs, but there's a huge long run gain to be had um, from protecting, you know, our economy in the long run. Is that fair? Yeah, I I think so. In in very similar um, in some ways to the conversation we have around capital, you know, Mm. to the extent that we raise capital, there may be some short term, um, I would argue, fairly mild private Mm -hmm. costs, um, but significant longer term social benefits. Um, to minimizing the chance of of a future. So, yeah, yeah. So I want to ask, I guess, a bit about Endgame with respect to, uh, you know, sort of a green Fed. And I'm going to talk about 13.3. I think, uh, you know, I can't believe Caleb gives me an outlet to just talk about 13.3 all the time. (laughs) I I think if I if I did like a word association with a psychologist, my answers would always be 13.3. But uh, but you and I have talked about this briefly in the past, and, and, and I, I want to air it out on the airwaves a little bit, because one thing that, you know, Greg, you and I agree on a lot of things, and one thing that we've kind of disagreed about is, or that, that uh, maybe frustrated me more than you, was some of the, the discourse around the 13-3 facilities in 2020 and how they were, uh, you know, maybe not the most climate-friendly. Uh, and, and there was, you know, there was more scandal around, did the Fed, you know, there was some pretty solid evidence that the Fed and Treasury expanded the Main Street lending facility to to accommodate oil and gas borrowers. Um, you know, my view is kind of, you know, there shouldn't be any value judgments in a crisis. Anyone getting paid to do anything should be a job the Fed is trying to protect. Uh, and that using a crisis opportunistically to to drive employment out of some sector uh, is not only bad policy, but also would be hard for the Fed to go into a press conference and justify of, hey, we're we're trying to get maximum employment, so we're doing all these stimulative things, but we're also trying to bankrupt the oil and gas industry. Uh, but there was a lot of folks who really wanted the Fed. They said, that, you know, this is bad for financial stability, that the Fed's including oil and gas. Oil and gas had all these problems before COVID, and now they're being essentially bailed out. You know, they got lucky because of COVID. 
um, you know, kind of where do you fall on that? What do you see as the justification for that kind of thinking? Or, or is that your, your thinking or where do you, where do you fall on that? And, and do you think that should be worked into the Fed's framework in a longer term basis? Yeah. So conversation, I hope um, you and, and others keep it alive because I feel like if we don't have this conversation, we're just going to do the same exact thing uh, next time uh, sure. th- that there's a serious crisis and not just on this climate front. I think my some of my largest issues with um, the corporate credit facilities, at, at least, were, uh, you know, the lack of, uh, of restrictions on executive compensation, on buybacks and dividends and on worker mm-hmm. retention for the companies that benefited significantly in the for from having their bonds purchased in the secondary market, even if. Um, they didn't borrow directly from the Fed in, in the primary market facility, which in some ways the secondary market facility made it so that the primary market facility wasn't needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so setting those um, aside just to, to zero in on, on climate, I, I do think um, there are a couple interesting threads here. Um, the first you mentioned is, is the Main Street lending facility. And there is significant evidence that um, the Fed and Treasury bent over backwards mm-hmm. uh, to change the, the terms of that facility to better cater um, mm-hmm. Two oil and gas companies, uh, uh, highly risky oil and gas companies, mind you, because some of the changes that were needed um, were around things like, um, you know, the, the the debt to EBITDA ratios and, and, and things like and things like that. Um, so you had bragging about <laughs> changes from from the, the, the Fed and Treasury to benefit one industry. So line of argument there should we be tipping the scales in favor uh, of an industry obviously we're about to, to talk a little bit more about the should it be neutral or should it actually be um you know a green screen on some of these these purchases but i think the first step of the conversation is you know around those facilities should we tilt the scales in favor of mm-hmm. um, a specific industry like like oil and gas um, well, if, if i can interject yeah. just for a sec I, I mean the, the the distinction i always try to make clear is the Fed is not like the ECB, where it has, where as a general course of QE, you know, it might be buying corporate bonds for years. And the question of neutrality versus, you know, a green portfolio versus, you know, a safe portfolio might come more into question. Um, you know, the Fed can really only do this stuff when 13.3 is invoked during unusual and exigent circumstances. So my view is kind of if, it, if a whole industry you know, the Fed's only got to make sure that a facility is is available to five plus borrowers per Regulation A. Uh, you know, it's got to be broad. It's got to be broad based per Section 13.3. So my view is kind of if a, if a whole industry comes to the Fed and says we're really hurting and you know we might need a 13.3 facility due to this crisis that's you know that is out of our hands or whatever. To me the Fed should bend over backwards. I mean, that's kind of my view is, is, is this isn't about one, this isn't about one particular, it's not just Exxon showing up. You know, if there's an industry and the Fed is trying to, to provide liquidity to Main Street in general and a whole Main Street industry comes up and says, yeah, we need out. All you got to do is modify this term or that term. And the Fed looks at that term and says, we can do that. Then uh, to me, it's like that, that's the Fed meeting its employment mandate. Um, so I guess, do you feel the costs or do you feel that's that's not a net in favor of the Fed's mandate? Do you feel it's net working against the Fed's mandate? And I think, Stephen, this really gets to your um, your, your your framing point about um, sort of long term um, goals versus versus short term goals and how we think about the balance 
um, between mitigating, let's say, short-term um, risks to, to employment in, in a certain sector, um, while at the same time potentially exacerbating medium and longer-term risks to financial stability um, by, uh, by engaging in, in, in sort of high carbon financing um, activities and extending emergency credit um, to these specific um, industries. So I, I think now is the time where we, we have the debate about mm-hmm. those balance of, of, of equities. Um, and so we go in clear eyed to the next crisis with, with a game plan, whether my argument wins or, or yours does. I don't think um, these are sort of snap judgment calls that should be mm-hmm. made um, in, in wartime. We should use, um, you know, that we should use peacetime in order um, to game plan and strategize. And I think that's something that slightly different context, but the Fed didn't really do after 2008 um, because we saw it revert to um, some of the same reliance on someone like BlackRock to manage these programs where you'd think, huh, maybe after 2008, you'd try to um, build in some capacity in-house that could potentially be deployed mm-hmm. um, to handle this to avoid maybe some of the issues that um, stem from you know uh, you know employing a, a BlackRock to to handle it. So I think hopefully in and I hope we don't have a, another massive crisis um, anytime soon. But I do hope that we you know the Fed does use this time to think um, carefully about um, about these these questions. Um, I'd argue that. Um, when we talk about market neutrality, I think that the Fed's um, uh, portfolio, emergency lending portfolio, should be aligned um, with a 1.5 degree um, economy. Um, I don't think um, that the Fed's um, emergency lending should should bolster in sort of an economy um, of the past that is inconsistent with um, our, our climate-related goals. Not because the Fed is the EPA or the Fed has a you know climate policy mandate, um, but because to the extent that um, our financial system um, is is inconsistent with a one point, that exacerbates and increases um, the potential transition risk um, that that our, our financial institutions and broader economy um, face. And I think over the medium and long term, um, the Fed shouldn't be taking steps, even if um, satisfying some of their short-term employment goals um, that threaten these severe issues over the uh, medium and, and long term. So you're absolutely right. It's a term um, employment-related goals and, and maybe long-term financial stability um, goals. And I hope that the Fed is willing to have um, a debate now in advance of the next crisis over um, where it falls on those balance of equities. Yeah, that's great. And if they don't, you and I will. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, let's wrap this up with just one more. I want to just, uh, Greg, give you one more chance to, uh, to, to leave on the table any other uh, wish list items for, uh, for the coming Fed. I mean, you've, you've mentioned a bunch uh, already today uh, from, you know, hoping to see supervisory letters and, 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 and guidance notes uh, coming out soon, more deliverables from these, uh, from these relatively new committees, uh, from, from within the fed, uh, more airtime from the governors and the chair, I'm sure, uh, is, is another thing that would be important. Are there any other, uh, specifics that you'd, uh, that you'd like to list out here, uh, in just the last minute or two about what you'd like to see the fed do in regards to climate? You hit on, I think, some of the the, the um, initial immediate steps that, that can be taken on something like supervisory guidance to make sure banks have integrated climate into their governance, um, all manners of, of risk management, internal controls, their capital planning, 
Um, and that process is going to be iterative over time as um, examiners um, discover best practices, as banks um, hopefully improve and perfect upon best practices, then that guidance can get um, uh, detailed um, over time. But a first step in that direction um, could be done um, very quickly. Stress testing um, is, is another, both creating standalone climate stress tests that try to look out 20 to, to 30 years. I think if you show just how significantly bank balance sheets and exposures would have to change to avoid catastrophic climate-related losses, both on the physical risk side and the transition risk side, then that could drive some changes today to balance sheets um, today. Um, beyond those two steps, which I think could be done relatively quickly, I've thought um, quite a bit about integrating capital into the climate or integrating climate into the capital framework. Um, because to me, it, it rests on a, a fairly straightforward um, premise, which is to the extent that we find um, a, a chance for, for higher losses than we previously anticipate on certain um, asset classes, um, then we should ensure that, that banks have an increased loss and those um, potential future uh, higher losses. Um, and you know, in, in the Basel III risk, risk, risk weights, for example, climate um, was not accounted for as we calibrated those um, risk weights. So I, I think it stands to reason to, to talk about whether there are certain assets that are, are riskier than, than their current assets uh, because of uh, both physical um, and transition risks. I also think from a macroprudential standpoint on, on climate, we should look not only um, to the risk faced um, by the institution, but also the risk created by the institution. If you think back to, to countrywide, we weren't uh, we didn't we weren't concerned with countrywide because it was um, too big to fail. It was only a two hundred billion dollar bank. The, the real problem with countrywide was it distributed uh, or it manufactured and distributed toxic financial products throughout the financial system. And I think you can make a parallel case um, when it comes to um, greenhouse gas uh, financing um, by by banks, not just um, on balance sheet, but also through, uh, you know, their, their trading um, activities and, and also um, their underwriting activities uh, off balance sheet that by facilitating greenhouse gas emissions, um, you are intensifying climate change and intensifying future climate related financial losses to other financial institutions. And so that in the similar way that the GSIB surcharge deals with the externalities caused by a bank's failure, that you could use capital requirements to um, internalize the externalities created by a bank's activities, um, which is a point that's made throughout um, Dodd-Frank, actually, that we should not just care about, um, you know, the externalities from an institution's failure, but also those created by its ongoing operations and, and activities. Um, so I think there are multiple ways. We have a complex capital framework in the United States for, for better or, or, or worse. So there are multiple ways that climate could um, could fit in and, and many potential approaches here. And so, I, you know, I think that should be um, on, on the table um, to, to start thinking about how we'd, we'd want to, to take that approach. And then the last thing I'd mention, and I think this is step beyond um, capital requirements is, you know, there, we want to outright um, limit certain um, activities, whether we're talking about concentration limits for um, regional banks in, in the oil patch that are extremely exposed to the risks um, of a transition, or if we're talking about um, portfolio limits, um, where, you know, we, we cap the sort of greenhouse gas um, uh, emissions financed by an institution to make sure it's in line with uh, a 1.5 degree world. Um, I think, um, you know, the, it's critical that we that we have that discussion about 
um, activities-based um, limits um, in, in the future. But I, but I think you can, uh, you know, take these things, you will probably see these things sequentially, but I think we can um, start working on all of them at the same time, because some of those um, medium-term and longer-term policy tools uh, I mentioned are going to take a long time um, to develop. So we should start thinking through those policy considerations now, um, even if other steps are going to be taken first. Wonderful. Well, that is a perfect, uh, a perfect list, uh, a perfect starting place. Uh, I hope that um, that those listening have have taken notes, and hopefully that in the next uh, the next chair, whether it's Powell Brainerd or our a surprise from Biden uh, and those under him, uh, will we'll take these into into consideration. Hopefully, we'll see these things things coming through, and we can protect the Federal Reserve forest out west. Uh, so we'll wrap it up there. Thank you, Greg, for coming on. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Caleb. And we're all on Twitter. I'm at Caleb Nygaard. Greg is at Finn Greg with two G's. And Stephen is at Stephen Kelly 49. Subscribe and share the show. And until next time, thanks for listening.